Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I know you're in the north. Are you, are you having any storm trouble up there, Kieran, at the moment? Uh, well, we travelled up yesterday and, and we had to go on a, a, a leisurely diversion uh, due to flooding uh, around Macclesfield. But uh, we're, we're in Manchester because uh, today uh, Manchester United are getting, sorry, Manchester City are getting their regulation victory uh, against <laughs> Brighton Hove Albion. We've not see, we've not picked up a point or come anywhere near picking up a point. Um, but uh, yeah, as, as football fans, it's always you, you go in you go in hope rather than expectation. Uh, of course, Kieran. I, I know you're in Manchester because we tried to have a, a quick Zoom meeting yesterday while you were on the train, but it's that you're in the quiet carriage. Which <laughs> yes. is because you're the only person I've ever met who takes the, the, the instruction to be quiet in the quiet carriage seriously. Um, <laughs> but we, I, I think we managed to translate your sign language. Full disclosure, Kieran, we should point out um, obviously, our dear listeners are having this poured into their ears on, on Monday morning, but we're, we're doing this on Saturday morning for, for various reasons. So if anything happens today, football-wise, we can't really discuss it. Um, and we can't even say thank you to the people of Salford for coming to our gig on Sunday night because we haven't been there yet. I'm, I'm travelling up today, but we'll just assume it was a lovely gig and we'll say thank you to everyone who came along and, and we'll say thank you to our new best friends, Europe, who are in the big room, at the same time, we're in the small room. <laughs> we're, we're assuming that we'll meet somewhere in the corridor and, and they'll go, hey, it's the amortization guy. Is, uh, <laughs> I, I believe they're Swedish. They might be Dutch by that. They're having a quick translation. <laughs> so let's, Kieran, let's get on with um, uh, it's questions today. We've got some very good questions, as always. Um, we've got one question that actually his wish has come true, which I'm very intrigued about, which we'll get on to. But the first question comes from Kevin Kissane. Uh, and Kevin Kissane says, if the La Liga salary cap rules were brought into the Premier League, how many clubs would actually be left to operate under that model? Well, this took me to spreadsheet heaven, Ooh. as you can possibly uh, imagine. Um, for those people unfamiliar with the La Liga rules, it's works sort of in reverse of looking at players' wages. Under the rules, which were introduced in 2013, and and that was because there were many Spanish clubs who were in genuine danger of going out of business, 
they, they've set a wage cap, and I think we'll be talking wage caps uh, probably later uh, in the week on the Thursday show. Um, but they set a wage cap, which starts off by saying, how much money, including player sales, do you expect to generate? Then they take away all of your finan- all of the financial liabilities that you've got to pay in the next 12 months. Then they take away all of the overheads and whatever's left over becomes your playing budget. And that, that playing budget is effectively going to be wages plus your net spend. Um, and that, if, if applied to the Premier League, starts to get quite scary. So I went through, I thought, well, let, let's take a look at both of our clubs. So I, I went into Palace's accounts. Um, and if, if we take a look at their player, total player cost, which is effectively going to be wages plus amortisation, um, that's £158 million. If you apply the La Liga rules, it drops from 158 to 50 so you're going to have a you know, massive pay cut. And we've seen this operate as far as Barcelona is concerned. Then then I take took a look at Brighton's. Um, and even though Brighton had had some pretty decent player sales in 2021-22, uh, they got rid of Ben White and, and so on, um, Brighton's total player cost would have dropped from um, around about 174 to zero because they owe so much money to Tony Bloom, which in theory is due to be repaid in here. So I, I'll go through this for every other club as well, as uh, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting daggers now from the Baroness <laughs> when she sees that I've just volunteered myself to create yet another spreadsheet. Um, but uh, it is it is fascinating. And uh, I met one of the guys from La Liga, who's one of, um, for want of a better way, but, but, but phrase, he was their enforcer. He, he was the accounting equivalent of Big Vern from Viz. Ooh. And um, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get him on the show to talk us through it in, in more depth. But it is, it's, it's genuinely a fascinating model. Spanish clubs aren't in danger of going bust, with, ironically, the exception of Barcelona <laughs> um, yeah. in the main. Um, but the downside of taking such an approach is it reinforces and expands the gaps between the rich and the not so rich as far as the Premier League is concerned. And and that's that's a shame. You know, there, there's there's many things which are great about the Premier League, uh, but the the lack of competitive balance is becoming uh, a, an increasing issue. And I know Steve Parrish has had some you know pretty significant words about this. And again we'll we'll talk about this in more depth on Thursday. But uh it's it's one of those things. It's good for sustainability, but it's not necessarily good for what you see on the pitch. If you want to see more competitive games, mm, I, I think we should briefly mention the Steve Parish comments, Kieran, because it is so relevant to this question. Um, one of the reasons I love Steve Parish, apart from the fact he saved my football club from extinction, is that he's as indiscreet as I am. Basically, <laughs> basically, if Steve Parrish and I were around in 1944, D-Day wouldn't have happened because we would have been, oh, yeah, yeah, five beaches, Canadians on one. Uh, so he, he left a meeting, which I assume uh, the last words of the chairman of this meeting uh, last week was, for the love of God, don't tell anybody what we've just discussed. <laughs> uh, and Steve Parrish found the nearest journalist and told him. that. So basically, Steve Parrish has said the Premier League are discussing uh, a, a, a wage cap um, and it will be related to the income of the lowest earning Premier League club 
and we will discuss this in more detail on Thursday, but how different would that model be then to the La Liga salary cap? Um, it would be significantly different because it would ignore your financial commitments over the next 12 months, which has been an issue. At the same time, you know, I, I, I go back to Law 101, and, and I'm not, hopefully, I'm not upsetting our silver tongue friends here uh, by saying that I remember when I, I was being taught law at university, and, and yeah, well, you'd, you'd law, you'd law modules, although I did an economics degree. Um, the first thing the guy came in and said, just remember, team, for every, for every rule, there's a loophole. And that's also tends to be the case in accounting. So what would happen is that the the, uh, the bean counters would would start. Yeah, you know, that they'd they'd have those those exciting meetings that they have between accountants, as you can imagine the uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the seven up flows um, like water, and <laughs> and they would come up with a series of alternatives. So you know, I, I took a look at those rules and go, well, if I can come up with half a dozen whilst I'm just preparing this question of ways to to address those, then I'm sure. Um, the, the clubs will do so. And we've seen also in the case of Barcelona, uh, it's legendary economic levers, yeah. um, which is, uh, I think, is the Spanish pronunciation of payday loans. I, I love the idea of a room full of accountants sugar rushing on 7up. We'll <laughs> uh, and I believe Law 101 was a UK sub single, wasn't it, back in the day? <laughs> yes, it was. <clears throat> um, our next question comes from Lorcan and Mullen. Kieran, and I think this is the question that can be fired of be careful what you wish for because uh, mm. rumour this week indicates that this might be happening. Lorcan says, given that so many clubs complain of fixture congestion caused by the League Cup, although I have to say, Lorcan, it's, it's not the League Cup that's causing the fixture congestion, I've long no. been confused as to why the two-legged format of the semi-finals is still in place. Would the losses be so great by moving to the old FA Cup format of neutral grounds near equidistant for each club's fans, e.g. Hillsborough for Man United Forest, Villa Park for Newcastle Southampton. Um, is that not better than the current format? Um, and again, big rumours this week, although in the mail, so you have to take them with a shovel full of salt, that we may be losing replays in both the League Cup and the FA Cup, Kieran. Yes, as far as this issue is concerned, and and. You know, the, the, I think the EFL have said it's in play as far as giving up the two-legged semi-final. If you take a look at the EFL TV deal, people think all of the money is generated from the matches which take place in the championship. I've got to be honest, um, probably at least a third of the value of the EFL deal comes from the Carabao Cup, comes from the League Cup itself. And... Where are the highest viewing figures going to come from? It's going to be the semi-final and the final. So the EFL have been holding on to this. It's it's a bargaining chip, and it's something which they are willing to, to give up if, as part of the ongoing negotiations with the Premier League, the EOSO will okay, we'll give up our two-legged semi-final, and we will, we'll get financial compensation for all of our 72 members as a consequence of that. Um, so, yes, it's almost certain to go. Um, with regards to the third and fourth round replays, um, or is it going to be fourth or fifth round replays? I think that's that's something the FA will probably give up because the FA have, have tended to, to fold 
every time that the Premier League's put pressure onto them. And I, I do think part of it's a shame, um, especially if you're a lower league club, to, to get two opportunities to see your club progress that far. But again, if the Premier League say, well, as part of that, we will come up with a financial solution which will help so perhaps uh, you know if Premier League clubs are playing against lower league clubs in the third or fourth round they'll split the gate receipts 75-25 in favour of the smaller club yeah everything can be negotiated because the bigger clubs in the Premier League they're not interested in the FA Cup they're not interested in the League Cup admittedly they tend to win it but yeah that's indicative of the uh, the financial gaps which lead to the playing gaps in, in terms of strength um, as far as comp- competitive balance is concerned. If it allows us to play in a in a more lucrative um, Champions League and so on. And, and to put the figures into context, if, if you win the uh, if, if you win the Europa no, sorry, if you win the Carabao Cup, I think you get either a hundred grand or two hundred grand. If you play one match in the Champions League, one extra match in the Champions League in the group stages, and you win it, you get two and a half million. So you can see you can see the benefits. Um, so as a result of that, I think it's just going to be trade. These things are going to be yes, horrible phrase to use. They're going to be traded away um, by both the the football association who will be looking for greater support for grassroots from the Premier League, and by the EFL who. Will sacrifice the um, the, you know, the Carabao Cup two league five, and and, and I don't. I mean, I think to be fair, I don't think there'll be that many fans who will say, "Oh, you know, two legged semi finals of of a Carabao Cup is, is something we're really missing." I think you and I are both old enough to remember when the the first round or the second round used to be two legged as well, because I, I I can remember in nineteen eighty four five. Uh, I know we beat Aldershot 3-1 in the first leg and then went to Aldershot and we were absolutely toilet and they beat us 3-0 um, and then we got the crap kicked us out, kicked out of us by a bunch of squaddies after the match because that was back in the day um, and that was sort of expectations of football. Um, but it, it's part of an ongoing narrative that the bigger clubs want fewer domestic matches and more lucrative international matches pre-season friendlies, tours, and so on. Well, of course, back in the day, the, the League Cup final itself was a, a two-legged affair because the, the FA wanted nothing to do with it. It was the Football League's own competition. So I think it was 66 or 67 before the final um, first took place at Wembley. We are a football finance pod, Kieran, as, as producer Guy keeps reminding us. If, if they were to scrap third-round replays, and as you say, Find some way of compensating lower league teams. You know, I would, I'd be more happy, but I just can't see them do it. And yeah, you know, we spoke to our good friends at Exeter City just a couple of weeks ago. Third round of the FA Cup, Man United are at Exeter. It, it's one all going into the to the last minute. Exeter don't want to score again, and they don't want Man United to score again because they want to go to Old Trafford. But partly a because they're going to enjoy going to Old Trafford and their players will love it, but B, because they're going to get a shed load of money from from the replays. It will probably be on telly. So it just seems wrong to take that possible finance stream from them, doesn't it? And, it, and it, there has to be a way. It's all very well for people to say, well, you know, drop FA Cup replays, but these are things that fans of, of smaller clubs dream of. And 
these are things that financial officers at smaller clubs dream of, aren't they? Yes, but when you take a look at it from the perspective of the, the larger clubs, um, finance and romance yeah, don't go point. together, yeah, with the exception point. of me, of course. <laughs> oh, Kieran, you've just given me my way to introduce you tomorrow night at the gig that's, all, that's already happened. Finance and... Well, we've already got them, but you're the man who puts the amor into amortisation, so now finance and romance. The man who... Oh, that's great. I'm writing that down, Kieran. Hang on. Well, well, as long as you don't say I put the anal into analysis. <laughs> I'm writing that down. I'm writing... Thank you, Kieran, you're on fire this morning. Thank you. Um, uh, this next question, Kieran, is one uh, that I love. Uh, I, I can imagine Dave O'Reilly... The, uh, the writer of this question. <laughs> yeah. I can picture him in my head and I really like him. Uh, and Dave, Dave's a dreamer and I love a dreamer. Uh, Dave O'Reilly says, since going to my first Scunthorpe United match, like many fans growing up, my dream was to play for the local team. Even as a 40-year-old, there's still something in the back of my head telling me it might happen one day. To be honest, Dave, the last few months, the way things were going, it could have happened then. Um, so I've always wondered, says Dave, why owners don't register themselves or maybe their son for the team they own and make the manager bring them on for the last two minutes of a match at the end of the season when nothing is, is at stake? Or why don't owners sell some rich person a place on the team and even just be on the bench for a match? Is there something I'm missing that prevents this? And I, do you know, in the back of my mind, Kieran, I, I, have, a, I have a feeling somebody tried to do this. Some years, but I'm, I've got not, not the guy at Man but I've got a feeling. But it's a, it's a great question from Dave. You could make a fortune by offering a you know, register a millionaire as a player, he bungs you 100,000 quid, you take him on for the last minute of the game. Um, there is absolutely nothing to stop it from wow. taking place, with the exception that there are squad limits in terms of the number of players that can be registered. Um, I know in the past, I remember when, when Brighton were extremely skint, that one of the things they used to have is sort of equivalent of a pre-season auction was you, you were able to buy yourself a squad number and you had and you sat in the official squad photo. Um, and <laughs> really? It was, yeah, and, and people people say, yeah, I'll, I'll buy a ticket for that. And you can absolutely yeah. understand the reason why. Um, the, the owner could do that. And the owner could put their their offspring. Wasn't it Colonel Gaddafi that that his son was sort of uh, you know, linked with with a, a club or two or something like that? It's so linked, he was linked with Palace for a time. He, what, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. True. True. Um, so that yeah, it, it could easily happen if if you find a rich enough owner um, and the players who are sort of yeah, they're sort of they'll just say okay, it's, as long as we get paid at the end of the month, we'll we'll happily sit in a photo in a in a photo shoot with them. Um, and yeah, they could come on for the last minute of a match, uh, wow. last match of the season, especially if it's you know fourteenth versus thirteenth yeah. in in League Two. Nothing going for it. Yep, nothing to stop it at all. Ah, uh, well, um, my mate Chirpy for his fiftieth uh, birthday, uh, realizing that he probably was never going to cut it as uh, a professional footballer, so desperate to get on the pitch at Sellers Park for some reason that he he tried to <laughs> he he applied to be a mascot. Um, and he, he offered to pay, and, and we spoke to the club about this, he offered to pay as much as it would take uh, and more, to, but the, the club thought it would be a little bit sinister. Um, or, or, 
Have a chirpy mascot. Well, he's very chirpy. He's slightly rotund at the time. He lost a bit of weight since. But (laughs) I I think Joel Ward probably put his foot down and said, I'm not walking on hand in hand with a 16-stone cockney, basically. (laughs) But I I think he would have got the biggest round of applause any mascot's ever got. Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Um, David Taylor has a question for us about amortisation. Um I speculate every week, Kieran, about when we're going to run out of questions about amortisation. This one, actually, is the most simple of all and is one that I probably should have asked you the first time you explained amortisation to me because David Taylor simply said, does the cost of a player have to be spread equally over the length of his or her contract for FFP or could it be split another way? We're so used to assuming, Kieran, that it is... If it's amortised over four years, then it's four equal payments. But does David have a point here? He does have a point because in 2016, Derby County decided to change their policy in relation to amortisation. And instead of if you sign a player for £20 million on a four-year contract, you say, well, 20 divided by four, that's £5 million a year. And, And that's what 91 other clubs decided to do. And then Derby decided, in conjunction with their accountants, um, that what they were going to do instead was to value the player at the end of each year, in effect, and say, let's work out what's happened in terms of their market value. And if the market value has gone down, then we'll put that through as amortisation. And what that meant, of course, is that if it's a half-decent player, the value of the player doesn't go down. So therefore, you don't charge any amortisation. And then when it comes to the final year of the contract, with the player potentially leaving on a Bosman, you tended to pile all of the amortisation into the final year. And as a result of that, Derby's amortisation charge was £30 million lower than it would have been had they used the policy that was used by every other club. And I've I've argued this with Derby, and uh, you know, I, for a period of time, I was public enemy number one in Derby because, and Uncle Terry will never forgive me for this, I snitched. I, I, I wrote to the EFL, and said, look, you need to be aware of this. Um, these are the consequences. And, and I'm a great believer, Yeah, when, whenever I teach any form of analysis work, or any, I, I just focus, I say, you focus on two sets of words, the because factors and the so what factors. Well, they've done this because it reduces uh, amortization. The so what, it allows them to spend £30 million more on wages in the championship with a view to getting promoted. And it almost came off. Remember, you know, Derby yeah, did get to the yeah, playoff yeah, yeah. finals. And, and if they had been, it, they would have been hailed. Um, and then, of course, you know, Mel Morris got bored and, and uh, put the club into administration. Um, as a result of that, um, 
I know that there was a change at the top at the EFL, and my my initial letter, which had been sort of returned with uh, you know, "go away," uh, you know, we're, we're not interested in accounting, which was sort of the sort of the traditional old school view of the EFL uh, of these things. Um, the new regime realised that there was financial consequences, and there were also FFP consequences. Um, and they have changed the rules now at the EFL, which says that you can only uh, do it on on an equal basis. Um, so, so that's that's where we are. Yeah, my view was that that was the rule that should have been applied in the first place, um, and yeah, that's where we are. So you you have to you have to apply it on an equal basis under EFL statute. It's actually part of the rules and regulations. Oh, well, that's, so initially, then it was kind of spread equally just by custom and practice, and because that's a sensible thing to do. But now you, you actually have to do it that way. There's no option. That that's right. I mean, I, I would argue as as an accounting nerd that you'd have to do it on an equal basis anyway, because I can look at you know Rule sixteen subsection four or something like that. Um, but uh, Derby, in conjunction with their accountants, uh, had a different interpretation. Yeah, so you sound less romantic when you start going on about Rule sixteen subsection four, Kieran. <laughs> it's, it's too close to the surface. It's just it simmers under. You can't stop it bubbling over every now and again like a, a geezer in Iceland, which I believe is what Uncle Terry is doing at the moment, being a geezer in Iceland. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> do, you, do you know what, Kieran? I, I'm sometimes slightly worried by how obsessed uh, our, our listeners are about managers leaving clubs. Um, and Alex O'Neill has a, a, a another, and it's a very good question, but Alex O'Neill said, if a manager leaves a club by mutual consent, would they still be paid out of their contract or would the fact that the club hasn't terminated the contract mean they don't receive a payout? Well, I had a, I did, of course, have to go to of course. the secret employment lawyer for discussions <laughs> in relation to this. <laughs> And it will come as no great surprise that <laughs> you, 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 could, you could sense them sucking in their cheeks yeah. and the response, well, well, Kieran, it depends, um, which is, is the classic answer. Um, it all comes down to terms and conditions. Uh, the, the manager does have an obligation to, to try to find alternate employment during uh, the, the period of, of the payout, uh, should there be one. Um, and they would get some form of financial compensation unless there was evidence of gross misconduct. And, and they, the level of financial compensation would be you know, de- ultimately determined by the manager's advisors when they initially sign their contract. They don't necessarily get, get as much as uh, is, is quoted in, in the media. Um, some managers are so desperate, especially in the lower leagues, you know, that they, they, they want to they want to get a, a foothold in the industry. So you know, I've, I've heard of the salaries of some managers in lower leagues, which um, were, were quite shockingly lower than I think most people. You know, we, we are definitely talking, you know, 20, 30,000 and so on, uh, which which I think will take some people aback. But they they wanted to, to have that opportunity. And, and they know the, the risks that go along with it. Um, and therefore, they, they deserve some form of protection. Because remember, managers are, it, it, it has become part of modern football cliches and psyche that change is the same as improvement. And the cheapest form of change does involve effectively sacking the manager and replacing them with somebody who may or may not be as good 
Um, and there's yeah, there's there's a thousand and one reasons why why clubs go on on poor runs, um, and it's not always down to the manager. Mm. Uh, our next question, Kieran, comes from Richard Cook, and it's a it's a kind of plaintive one. Um, Richard says, "What's going on at Blackpool?" I've kind of drifted away from my team thanks to the Oyston saga and living on Tyree. Um, what a wonderful place to live. But when Sadler took over, it looked rosy and great that we got back into the championship. But this year, there have been reports that the club was up for sale and financially, the club and Sadler aren't doing great. Um, yeah, si- Simon Sadler uh, did effectively rescue the club from the Oysters. As you know, they're... Mm-hmm. Not my favourite people for a variety of reasons, um, and he bought the club. He's only been there two or three years. He's already put in twenty three million pounds of his own money, uh, and Blackpool did do tremendously well in terms of getting to the championship. But we we go back to our you know, old discussion. the The championship is is the clown car of European football uh, from a financial point of view. Every single club is losing money on an operational basis, um, and he put. Uh, I think in September there was there was a long statement from Simon Sadler, um, along the lines of people are saying, "Where's all the money gone in terms of player sales?" But he's he's, he's rightly pointed out is that if you have a decent player and you sell them, if you sell a player for ten million pounds, you don't get ten million pounds because everything's done in installments. Yeah, we've uh, and we don't know. If, in respect of many deals, but but some of them crop up a little bit later when the uh, the selling club uh, effectively cashes in the IOUs which are owed for future instalments. So we take the case of James Madison going to Spurs. The agreed fee was forty million pounds. Leicester City fans were going, well, that's forty million pounds in our playing budget. But from a cash point of view, it was three instalments, so they only received thirteen million from Spurs in sort of July 23. They get another 13 million in July 24, another 13 million in July 25. And then you've got VAT issues coming out of that as well because you have to pay all of the VAT on the deal regardless of the cash flow. And actually, the the football club doesn't necessarily end up with a lot of cash as a result of that player sale. Immediately, over a longer period of time, it's it's less of an issue. Um, So, uh, yeah, Blackpool, they're currently seventh in the uh, in, in League One, so you know they're they're, they're certainly uh, around the, the the playoff places. So I think that being a little bit harsh with regards to his personal circumstances, I'm I'm not really qualified to talk. You know that that's a that's a private issue, but he has been a pretty generous owner to date, um, and and has put money in, um, and, and the same can't be said of the the Oysters. Let me get that straight. As you know, VAT, I'm a bear of small brain financially. We we all know that VAT is my nemesis. So when um, Leicester get their first instalment of £13.3 million for James Madison, but they're paying £8 million up front for VAT, which I presume 20% of £40 million, I presume VAT is 20% even yep. at that level. So that, so that's well, okay. So that that, seems, that does seem a little bit unfair, doesn't it? Really. So they, so in effect, they're only getting five million quid for the first payment of James Madison. Yeah, yeah. But it'd be a little bit more than that because because when they sell the player, it's forty million plus VAT. Oh, but, okay, okay, yeah. right, right, okay. But but that the, the instalments due from Spurs would be you know thirteen point three each time plus that. Um, 
but yeah, it, it's it's still a big hit as far as the the selling club is concerned, and that's why Leicester went to Macquarie. And yeah, we we give Macquarie a little bit of grief, not not necessarily from a football point of view, but um, you know mainly from the point of view that they were the people behind what's happened at Thames Water and, and they're yeah, responsible yeah, yeah. for um, an awful lot of what's gone wrong with uh, yeah with with the with the rivers and streams and uh, you know I, I, we, myself and the Baroness we take Finlay down to the beach where there's raw sewage being pumped out oh, from no, some no, of no, the, no. the overflow pipes and, and you go we're supposed to be the what the fifth sixth richest richest club country in the in the world and, yeah. and this is what we're doing to but but that's that's for another podcast the price of water yeah <clears throat> I'd, I'd happily do that podcast, Kieran, and get Fergal Sharkey on uh, to be righteously angry and quite right. Don't really don't start me on Thames Water. It's just shameful. Um, our next question, Kieran, our pre-penultimate question comes from James S, uh, who's either trying to keep a low profile or has the shortest surname we've ever had uh, from the <laughs> questioner. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's an interesting and accounting accounting one for you, Kieran. We know how happy you are. How significant, says James S., is the value of the playing squad when calculating the value of a football club? I think this is a a really intriguing question from James. And the reason for that is that if people say, well, you're inheriting a valuable squad um, and therefore you could sell the players, it's ignoring the fact that you'd have to replace them with players of equal quality. Um, I think the only area, the only time I would be concerned about the value of the playing squad is if the value is very low and you've got an ambitious prospective new owner who wants to take the club forwards. And therefore, under those circumstances, what I'd be looking at is not the value of the squad, but the value of getting, you know, the cost of getting rid of the squad, either paying them up their contracts or flogging them off for, for low fees where you'd register a loss. So if you've got a lot of if you've got a lot of players coming through the academy. Who you think are going to be worth a fortune, and, and then we yeah you know, we get we go back to the you know the legendary John Bostock story. You know, yeah. Everybody thought he was yeah, going yeah. to be amazing. Um, I remember, wasn't it Wayne Harrison at, at Oldham who mm. went to to Liverpool you know, a good thirty years ago, and he was supposed to be the new wonder kid, and it didn't work out for him. But if you if you've got uh, lots of promising talent in the academy, what you'd say it's not the the, the value of the squad in the accounts, it's it's the value of the prospective value of those players, which which you you could then go and go down the Chelsea model, and what Chelsea are very successful at doing is 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 converting their academy talent. Manchester City have adopted this model as well, selling their academy talent at huge profits, even though the players have hardly featured in the first first thing. You know, Cole Cole Palmer has just gone from City to to Chelsea for forty million, and you know he's what two or three full matches in a City shirt. Um, so it it would be something that you would take into consideration, but it would not be preeminent. That the main focus would be on the future cash flows of the club, some of which would involve some player sales, but actually it's, it would more be on the focus of expectations of TV deals, commercial and, and match day revenues, and so on. I, I got into a black taxi uh, a few months ago, probably a few years ago, now, driven by John Bostock's dad. Um, oh really? He, he claimed to be John Bostock's dad, and it's not the sort of thing you'd make up, really, is it? He had he had photographs of him on his dashboard. It, it says John Bostock is is happy and healthy, which I was very pleased Good. to hear. But what 
I, I tell you, I've not, I've not seen a better young player than John Bostock when he was in our youth team. And it's just tragic the way his career got sidetracked. And it just shows how easy that is to happen, even for the most talented footballer. Um, our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from James Mansfield. Um, I, I presume this question is right up your street, Kieran. To be honest, I've, I've tried to read through it three times um, and had to go for a walk halfway through each time because it's quite technical. But James says, whilst transfer spend numbers are widely publicised at individual club and league aggregate level, I was wondering what sort of figures we'd be talking about across the Premier League when it comes to cumulative player write-downs, realised losses, upon sales inside the initial contract period. Rather than expected transfer fee amortisation, I'm talking about the amounts lost on transfer flops who never settle following big money moves. Which clubs have wasted the most, at least from an accounting perspective? Right. Um, This is an issue which has tended to bypass nearly all of the commentators. Um, Mm, And me. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) But what... What James is effectively saying is that if you if you buy a player, if you buy a player for fifty million pounds on a five year contract, and after three years you sell him for let's say twenty eight million, you bought him for fifty, you sell him for twenty eight. From a cash point of view, you've lost twenty two million pounds, but that never gets really discussed, and that's and that never gets mentioned in the accounts. Because what they do is that they compare the amortised value of the player, which would, after three years, would be twenty million. You sell him for twenty-eight, and you show an accounting profit. So, so the figures that we see in the accounts, in my view, are very misleading. And again, another one of my side projects on a spreadsheet is that I am working my way through every single set of accounts since the Premier League started to work out <laughs> the cash losses. All right. Uh, the Baroness has just walked out of the room. Um, <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, I'm guessing that back down in, in Sussex, the Finleys walked out of the room as well. I think they yes. probably both yes, instinctively it, walked out at the same time. <laughs> yes, he's he's just uh, he's just he's just written February 2025 in his When's My Next Walk diary. Um, <laughs> Who's looking after Finley, by the way, while you were away? Um. He's been looking after by by my very good friend Neve, who's, who's our, our our dog minder. She's oh. she's absolutely wonderful. Uh, she's uh, she's also a massive fan of the Cure, um, so yeah, she's she's uh, she's very good, very good at, at uh, with Finley, and he he loves her to bits as well. Oh, um, so what I've done is I've only worked it out for a, a few clubs, but my suspicion that Manchester United would be the best of the worst for want of a better phrase is is looking like it's coming to fruition so if we just take a look at the period since sir alex ferguson retired manchester united have lost 630 million pounds cash in terms of players that have moved on so i you you've you bought paul pogba for 80 million and he walked away for nothing at the end of a of a of, on a bosman and Angel de Maria came in at 70 million. They sold him for 55. So I went through the whole of uh, Manchester United's accounts and uh, you know, there's 1,300 pages in some of their annual accounts. You have to really go through the small print. And over the period of the last 10 years, um, you know, six, 630 million cash loss uh, 
the, the vast majority of clubs are nowhere near that. You know, Chelsea just have just about turned negative because what Chelsea are very good at doing is making cash profits. Tamori, um, uh, Tammy Abrahams, you know, and so on. The players from the account. Manchester United have have performed very poorly here. And I think this is you know, part of the, the reason why why their fans have been so disappointed and pointed the fingers at the Glazers with regards to this. And, and I think the, 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 the Glazers are in my black book for a variety of reasons, mainly to do with Super League and Project Big Picture and things like that. But holding them responsibility for what can only be looking like a, you know, a, a poor performance. Yeah, because if, they, if these were antiques that you were buying and you say, well, these, you know, yeah, we bought them and sold them. We've lost six hundred and thirty million pounds in ten years. You'd say, well, who, whoever's in charge of buying at your antiques broker, um, they're they're pretty shoddy at what they're doing. And these numbers, which are not easy to pick out from uh, the Manchester United accounts, but I did, I did a bit of triangulation and uh, worked out the numbers are quite significant. And again, that's why Manchester United are struggling in relation to. Uh, compliance with FFP and, and having to be a little bit circumspect with regards to the players that they're buying. You see, there are thirteen hundred pages in Man United's accounts. Yeah, yeah. And you're you're going through the accounts of every club since the Premier League started, and you're expecting to see Findlay in February. Just <laughs> why do you take why do you take these tasks on, Kieran? Well, um, I've I I wanted a speed reading course. <laughs> That's very funny. Our last question, Kieran, comes from Jeff Carr. Um, uh, For some reason, I've taken a shine to that name. I love the name Jeff Carr. I can just imagine on a Saturday afternoon, there's been a goal at Halifax. Jeff Carr, who scored it? Well, Jeff... Um, Jeff Carr says, and it's um, again, it's a simple but effective question. How many clubs in the Premier League make an accounting profit? And do any clubs make a positive cash flow before owners' investments or loans? Right. Uh, again, uh, back back to the spreadsheet. <laughs> um, what I, th- I think might surprise people is that if we ignore player sales, because the thing about profit is that there are six or seven different ways that you can define profit. Uh, so I always have to be a little bit careful. If we if we look at what we might call core day-to-day um, profits of football clubs, ignoring player sales, only two clubs out of the 20 made a profit in the season 21-22. Remember, that's a non-COVID season. Those two clubs were Brentford, and it was Brentford's first season in the Premier League. So I'd expect Brentford potentially to make a loss in 22-23 because you know, if Brentford would have been promoted, players would have had step-ups in contracts. They would have been on, you know, they'd have gone from, say, you know, £12,000 a week to £30,000 a week. So they've got, got a big step-up, but it's still quite, they were still quite low wages. They had the lowest wage bill in the Premier League that season. Whereas in the second season in the Premier League, you, you've got the players' agents coming to the chief executive's door and say, look, you know, my, my client's proved himself at being a Premier League player. I want more competitive Premier League wages and, and the club normally fade, 
cave in on that because they don't really have any alternative. So, um, and the other one was was West Ham, and the reason why West Ham made a profit that that's down to you and I, Kevin, yeah, as I taxpayers. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've said before a. Uh, uh, you know, paying three million pounds rent on a stadium which costs seven hundred million pounds to convert into a football stadium probably isn't going to go down as the, the best financial deal of all time from from the perspective of the government. Um, so it, it's two clubs on a uh, on a day to day basis. If we then take into account player sales. Um, then it improves, but it's still only half a dozen. So the majority of the clubs in the Premier League are still losing money. And of course, this is why the Premier League is actually quite defensive when it comes to the negotiations with the EFL about a revised distribution model for uh, TV, because the Premier League will say, well, if we're losing money, there is ultimately that yeah, we, we can't afford to give you 25%. Of, of our total revenues and you know, it, and it won't be 25% in all probability. Um, so, so that was that. And when it came to cash flow, um, there, there's, there's a phrase that we use in business which is called operating cash flow. If you're running a pub, you know, before you think about redecorating, before you think about putting in some you know, new pipes for, the, uh, you know, for pulling your pints and so on, you'd say, are we actually making money are we making cash on a day-to-day basis? And you would expect for any mature business, if, if you're if you're running a greengrocer's stall and you can't make money from selling apples that you know two pounds a kilo and they're, and they're costing you seventy pence a kilo, if you cannot make cash from generate positive cash from that, you should you close down the business because you know as as the inference was coming here from Jeff. Jeff, Park, Jeff Carr, you know, before the owners put more money in, before you borrow money, if you're, if you're, lo- if you're generating nothing and you've got nothing left to invest, then, then you should close down the business. Um, and only 10 clubs out of the 20 in the Premier League are actually generating a positive cash flow. Um, and the clubs I'd expect to be at the top, you know, Spurs and Liverpool, which in my view are the two best-run businesses in the uh, in the Premier League, I've got nothing for ad- but admiration from a financial point of view. Purely, Liverpool are, are incredibly forensic. Spurs, you know, very very detailed. The two biggest loss making clubs in the Premier League, um, both of which, yeah, surprise surprise, have had ownership issues, are Chelsea and Everton, where where you had you know Roman Abramovich, and, and then you had sort of the post post uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine issues, and in the case of Everton just either either a lack of care about cash management or just a huge amount of bravado from Farhad Mashiri. Mm. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind. But it also gets you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash price of football. Our next live Discord session will take place this very evening, Monday the 23rd of October at 7pm. And if you'd like to chat to me, Kieran, producer Guy, or any of our other ultras, and you can sign up now at Patreon. We'd love to see you there. 
If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Our next live show will be at the Royal Yacht on Jersey on November the 7th to get your tickets. And I think there's only about five left. You can do that by going to priceoffootball.com or the venue itself. And you can go to priceoffootball.com if you want to buy our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, or one of our other books, or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt. Go to priceoffootball.com. That's the fourth time I've said Price of Football. I'm going to find a more elegant way of saying priceoffootball.com in future. Kieran, we'll be back on Thursday with our regular news pod. All the updates on your hard salary cap and your Steve Parrish. Um, uh, until then, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. Um, and again, thank you for everybody who's come to the Salford Show, even though we're recording this before the Salford Show. <laughs> uh, but we're in a, in a particular time warp. Um, and, and we're looking forward to uh, having our little Discord chat. There can mm. be lots of lots of gossip, lots of things that we can't say on the show. Mm. Um, although producer guy does get very twitchy when we say, <laughs> no, 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 the, 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 legal, the legal rules don't apply if you do it in a glorified WhatsApp group. Um, and he goes, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> You've got it wrong. Um there's various ways you can support the show. Um, you, if those of you, and there'll be some very kind comments about the book, if you yeah. give us a, the book a review on Amazon, that'd be really cool. Uh, we've had some very nice things said to date. Um, and you can also support the podcast by giving us a review using your uh, podcast app. Um, I, I was tasked with coming up with a playlist for Spotify purposes, but for the live show as well. So mm. I was going through my record collection um, and I, I was tempted to bring in, uh, because we are in the Northwest, I was tempted to bring in uh, the uh, one of the finest bands in the Northwest, Half Man, Half Biscuit. Um, but I decided not to. But as we are looking for a, a football connection for the show, I would therefore say, it wouldn't it be great if you said the show was rather presented by Brian Moore and Dickie Davis? Oh. And that would bring a lot of nostalgia back. Oh. Uh, and for anybody thinking, where did they, those names come from? Um, there are two songs, one of which is called Brian Moore's Head is Uncannily <laughs> Like the London Planetarium. Um, and the other one is called Dickie Davis Eyes, both by the wonderful Half Man, Half Biscuit. Yeah, and and to this day, uh, officials at Dukla Prague still bemused by the amount of people turning up from the, <laughs> to, just looking for a Dukla Prague away shirt, basically. Half Man, Half Biscuit. Oh, geez, I'm, I'm in a reverie now. You mentioned Brian Moore. And Dickie Davis. I never got to meet Brian. Always one of my heroes. I did meet Dickie Davis, and he was fantastic. Um, fantastic. Good yeah. to And if you're ever bored, Google Dickie, because this is how life was in the 70s. Dickie Davis was out one night with uh, Eric Morecambe, um, and they both got spectacularly drunk, by all accounts. And Dickie Davis said, well, I'm doing well to sport tomorrow. Why do you want to come with me? So Eric Morecambe just basically turns up at the studio with with Dickie Davis. It's out there on YouTube. It's it's just a clearly hungover Eric Morecambe just causing mischief and mayhem while Dickie Davis is trying to introduce the log rolling from Vancouver because the, the BBC had the rights to all the other sports. Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm for the